Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John uh, chapter 16. We're going to be covering verses 16 uh, through 24 this morning. Um, we've been in John's gospel for a while now. We know here's kind of the setting. Um, it is the night before Jesus would be killed, and Jesus has this, this intimate time with his disciples and what's kind of known as his farewell discourse, which is recorded in John chapters 14 through 17. And his disciples, they go through this incredible range of emotions. A few years ago, uh, if you have children, you may recall there was a movie that came out called Inside Out. As remember this, it was a 3D animation movie. It made like a billion dollars or something. And uh, the setting for that movie, the whole movie was set inside the mind or the brain of this teenager by the name of Riley. And what happened is we would actually see her, her emotions on display. They were kind of personified by well-known uh, actors and actresses. And, and so they would, we would get a glimpse into when anger would surface and when fear would take center stage and so on. And all of those emotions were kind of, some would surface and, and then disappear and then reappear and so on. Well, the disciples, disciples have experienced all these emotions among others. They've experienced joy. They've experienced sadness. They've, they've experienced fear, they've experienced longing, and now we're going to see that they experience confusion. And typically we might think when we read this back and forth between Jesus and his disciples that, well, that's just the disciples being the disciples because we see them do this all the time. Uh, but when we read today's passage, we're going to really see where they're coming from, where this confusion uh, stems from. G uh, John chapter 16, and let me start by reading verses 16 through 20. The word of the Lord reads this way, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will see me, and a little while and you will, uh, a little while and you will see me because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So the way that John records this exchange is a little comical, frankly. So Jesus says, a little while and you won't see me, and then a little while and you will see me. And the disciples say, what does he mean, a little while and we won't see him, and then a little while and we will see him? And Jesus says, is this what you're talking about when I said a little while you won't see me, and then a little while you will see me? The whole thing is, is kind of confusing. In fact, one biblical commentator says, after four verses of these twin sentences, we are no closer to knowing what Jesus means than we were at the first verse. And so, certainly, the disciples have reason to be confused. I mean, this is, this is a confusing way to phrase things, and Jesus has said things to them that, that they just aren't really registering yet. Their teacher, their mentor, their leader, their friend, he keeps talking about leaving them and then showing up again, but he doesn't ever tell them where he's going to go specifically. He's hinted that it will not be a peaceful departure. In fact, it will involve his death. So when Jesus says to his disciples, in a little while you won't see me, and in a little while you will see me, all of this is kind of hovering over their heads in a cloud of confusion. And really their confusion, it really stems from three things. 
They're confused by three things, it, it appears, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Number one, that, that Jesus' death could result in anything good, which doesn't make sense to them. Uh, number two, that their sorrow could give way to joy. And number three, that they would soon go to the Father with their questions and not Jesus. These are the things that are apparently plaguing them. So let's look at the first confusing notion that Jesus' death could result in anything good. It's just, it's just one of those things that they just they can't really accept. And, and for good reason, we might say. In the first century Jewish culture, there were no such things as what we call celebrations of life. You know, we have a lot of euphemisms for when someone dies and, and when we go to a funeral, we call it a celebration of life. Well, they didn't have those in the first century, Jewish culture. There were funerals, of course, but someone who died was not celebrated. He or she was grievously mourned. Death brought with it tremendous anguish. And so funeral processions would often involve people wailing and screaming and crying. And if there weren't enough people to wail, then people would be paid to wail. And these were often There were female mourners who would be part of the funeral procession, and they would scream, and they would yell. And even the poorest folks in Israel, according to the Mishnah, had no less than two flutes and one wailing woman. So every funeral service had at least one wailer, typically uh, among many. People tore their clothes in grief. They would rip their clothes. No one ever called a funeral service a celebration of life. Death, Death was simply not viewed that way. There was a perceived finality to it. When people looked around, they thought, this is, the, this is the end, this is it. Death was a consequence of God's curse. Death was not natural. Death was not beautiful. So when Jesus talks about himself being hated and ultimately killed, hence the repeated references to him going to the Father, the disciples, they can't possibly envision this as a good thing. How could this possibly be good? How could anything good come of this? But Jesus makes it clear that his death, though a violent and gruesome event, was a good and necessary thing in that his death would lead to his return by way of his resurrection. This is what Jesus keeps talking about. In a little while you won't see me, and then in a little while you will see me. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. He tells his disciples that he... He's talking about what would soon, they would soon know because everyone in the town will be talking about it. But again, they had a hard time seeing his death as a good thing, even though we know from the whole of Scripture that it's, it was a very good thing for his disciples and certainly a good thing for us because in his death, Jesus would suffer the wrath of God that we deserve, and by his resurrection, we would be fully justified in front of a holy God by faith alone. The disciples are, again, understandably confused. Not one gospel writer, by the way, suggests that they, that they ever really understood what was going on until after the resurrection. But here's what they're missing, and this is our first point this morning. Without the pain and reality of the cross and Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, we would still be dead in sin, eternally condemned and stumbling around in darkness. This is the good part of the cross. This is why we call Good Friday good, because without the death of Jesus, there would be no forgiveness of sins. And the greatest need that every human being has 
whether it's a child, a young adult, a senior adult, man or woman, is to be forgiven and reconciled to God. And yet this could never be possible without the death of Christ. We have a small team of folks here at Capshaw who minister every week to the, uh, the men at the Limestone Correctional Facility. And these people do an amazing work. Um, they go and, and, and on Tuesday spend hours there discipling and teaching and instructing and, and praying for, for these men. And then on Wednesday, so one of the ladies who goes on Tuesday, on Wednesday she brings a, a list of prayer requests from the men who are incarcerated. They're handwritten notes and they're, they're not easy to read at times, but, but as a staff we, we bring those before the Lord and we, we cry out to God on behalf of these men who are imprisoned. And uh, one thing that always stands out to me is the, the incredible guilt that is expressed in so many of these prayer requests. One of the most recent, on one of the most recent prayer sheets, a man wrote, pray for me, the devil is tormenting me with guilt and shame. I can't get free. Just could not rid himself from the guilt of whatever it was that he did that put him in prison. Just this last week, one of the sheets, uh, someone wrote this, pray for me, I've done absolutely nothing good for 30 years just absolutely wrecked with guilt. Now, of course, you don't have to be in prison to feel guilty, do you? We feel it all the time. Satan is not just the accuser of those who are in prison. He is the accuser of all God's people, the Scriptures tell us. And he's constantly accusing us, constantly trying to plant the seed of doubt. You've, you haven't done nearly as much as you could have done today, he reminds us. You're not very, doing a very good job as a mother. There's so many things you could be doing better. You're failing as a father. You got angry again. You said you weren't going to do that. You spent that money that you don't have again. You're a lost cause. You'll never change. You looked at pornography again. You, you'll never be able to stop. You are so all over the place with your spirituality, hot and then cold. God is done with you. With all the ways you've blown it, you think God really loves you? Satan wants us to know that we have fallen woefully short of God's standard. And here's the thing. He's right. We have. And we continue to. But no matter how poorly we measure up against God's holy commands... Jesus Christ, by His own faithful life, has met the law's demands for us. And by His death, He has satisfied God's wrath. He's taken away the writing on the wall that stood against us, as Paul says. And by His resurrection, He's gifted to us His own permanent, perfect record. He's not only dealt with us as sinners, He's also in Christ. God has defeated the power of sin, death, and the devil. So now nothing, not hardship, not persecution, not distress, not famine, not nakedness, not peril, nor violence can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For, for those of us who have run to Jesus in repentant faith, there's now no more condemnation, the Scriptures say. When Christ comes again in His glory, He will return having already borne every one of your sins on the tree. And everything that belonged to us, that is to say our sin, became His. And everything that belonged to Him, His righteousness, 
became ours. His death gives way to our life. But, our, but the disciples, again, they couldn't grasp that. They could not see. How could the death of their beloved Savior and Lord and friend and leader and teacher, how could it possibly end up good? Now, they also struggled how to, to understand how their sorrow could be turned to joy. Look at verse 20 again. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Why would the disciples weep? Again, because their Lord and Savior would be killed. Why would the world rejoice? Because those who hated Jesus, because His claims to be God, one with the Father, they would think that they had won. They would watch as Jesus' body hung on a tree. This is a very real death that involved the complete stoppage of every organ. He really died. So the world would rejoice. The disciples would weep, but Jesus says their sorrow would turn to joy. Look at verses 21 and 22. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says, in the same way that a pregnant woman endures the pain of childbirth, knowing that very soon she will actually hold her child, so all of this labor and agony will end with this incredible reward. Jesus says, in the same way, his disciples can endure the suffering they will go through in this sin-cursed and hostile world, knowing that the earth will soon give up Jesus, so to speak, resurrected from the grave. And that reunion that the disciples experience with Jesus will be the greatest reunion ever. I mean, think about it. The death-defeating Jesus, back together with his exhausted and incredulous and frightened disciples. And in that, Jesus says, there will be much joy. I was driving the other day to meet a friend for lunch, and as I was driving back-to-back, -back, uh, Van Morrison songs played on my car stereo, both from the same album, is a 1995 album called Days Like This. It was, I don't know if they call it Two for Tuesday or whatever, but it was back-to-back -back songs by the same artist. And the first song to play was a song called No Religion, in which the, the Belfast crooner basically mocks all faith systems, all religions, especially Christianity. It's a choice between fact and fiction, he sings. And it goes on to say, it's so cruel to expect the Savior to save the day. And then the very next song, no joke, because it's the very next song on that album, is called Underlying Depression. And the song, it's a song in which he laments the emptiness of life on earth, underlying depression. I have to crawl into my room. There's nowhere to turn. I just can't get it right. I have to fight it with all my might. Now, it struck me as a little more than ironic, and I'm sure that this was probably his intent in the way that he organized the songs, that a song essentially scolding anyone who believes in any sort of real or personal God would be followed by a song, again, bemoaning the misery of life on this earth. And the succession of songs kind of made me think for a minute about the ways that we often think about joy and even search for joy. I think in some ways this, 
joy um, has been replaced by what I might call manufactured positivity, and that is that uh, I, just, I just know that tomorrow's going to be amazing and my life's going to be incredible if I just believe it, and so I can be happy about it. I just got to get myself worked up that I know things are going to be so awesome tomorrow. I heard one well-known pastor say recently, be happy because things in your life are about to change for the better. And I thought to myself, well, how does he know that? He doesn't know that. I may get cancer tomorrow. I may lose someone I love. Something horrible may He doesn't know things are going to be better tomorrow. Now, I hope I don't experience those things, but I might. He has no idea what's in store for me tomorrow. Another popular preacher says regularly, it may look like this difficulty is going to defeat you, but you will emerge victorious. You just have to believe it. And I hear that and I say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if real joy comes from believing that you have the inner strength to conquer any challenge. In fact, I know that it doesn't come from that. Sounds more like just sort of blissful naivete or wishful thinking to me. True joy, the kind we see in the Scriptures, actually comes not as we sort of speak our happiness into existence, but actually in, in, it's caused by a number of things, three that we see most in the Scripture. And the first is the joy of forgiveness. Joy comes not as we ignore our brokenness or we, we, we sort of put our heads in the sand about our own inability, our own failures, but as we acknowledge our brokenness and inability and experience God's forgiveness. After he committed infidelity with Bathsheba and then orchestrated the, the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, King David went through one of the darkest times of his life. And there's a point where he's, he's in such anguish that he says to God, like every single ounce of me, every part of my bones just aches in pain. And then I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not conceal my iniquity. And after he confessed his sin to God and experienced the power of God's forgiveness, David could write this, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. We don't, we, don't, we, don't become, we don't get joy just by sort of getting ourselves amped up, you know, and just, just speaking into existence some sort of happiness. Joy comes, we see in the Scripture, first of all, by experiencing forgiveness. And the second sort of cause we see of joy in, in the Scripture is, is humble and consistent obedience. As we obey God, depending upon the Holy Spirit, we experience joy. We, we actually avoid the consequences of sinful and foolish rebellion, and we experience the joy of walking in that harmony with our Father. Now, certainly, we have to be honest with ourselves, certainly sin brings pleasure and even a degree of happiness. But it's short-lived, isn't it? And it leaves a bitter taste. About 15 years ago, I was in South Africa working with an organization that rescues children who'd been orphaned by AIDS. And I was invited to this very important meeting. It was a very serious and formal meeting where a, a South African doctor in the community was going to give this ministry 45 hectares of land. Now, a hectare is like 
I think one hectare is like two and a half acres. So you're talking about over, over what, 100 plus acres of land this doctor was going to give to this ministry. And I was invited to be part of it. It was sort of a very formal ceremony. And so we all kind of sat together in a circle. And, um, and in my mind, I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not wired to be like a real serious formal guy. And so I'm thinking, just don't mess this up, right? So we're extended tea. And I, so I took the little thing of tea, which was a little tiny thing. I better to get my finger in. And, we, and I, don't, I don't really drink a lot of tea, but I had tea. And then, and then the guys came uh, the, the, the servers came around and extended sandwiches to us. And these were sandwiches that had on them things I had never seen before. I had never even read about. And so I thought, well, I'll take the one that looks the least offensive. And I took one. Um, it just had some brown stuff on it, which doesn't sound good, I know. But I took one of the sandwiches, and I took a bite of it, and my tongue just crystallized in my mouth. I, it was the most disgusting thing I'd ever tasted. I didn't know what it was, but I thought, there's no way that I can finish this. I'm going to ruin this whole deal because I can't eat this sandwich. So I got up. Uh, we were all sitting in a circle. I got up, and I kind of hid the sandwich. I had seen a cat in the house earlier, and I know that cats will eat anything. And so I went, and I, I found this cat. I just tried to force the sandwich in the cat. The cat wouldn't eat it. The cat wanted nothing to do with it. So I, I, I didn't know what to do with it. I thought about maybe putting it under some furniture or something, but I thought surely that'll get seen. And so I went back to the circle. I had my sandwich in my hand. And to my great delight, uh, someone said, you know, we really need to pray about this. So while we were praying, I was able to slip my sandwich onto another guy's plate. And uh, he was not happy when he opened his mouth to find out this sandwich was on his plate. I would later find out, and maybe, maybe some of you who cook, you know, it was something called beefy bovril. You heard this before? It's kind of like, like the English version of Vegemite. It's a very, I don't know what it is, but it was, it was not good. But I, I, had, I took one bite of it, and I had this bitter taste on my tongue the rest of the day. I could not get rid of it. Pounding the tea, the water, I could not get rid of this taste. And this is the way that it is with sin. There's a bitter taste and maybe it's good for a moment, but there's a bitter taste. And it's so hard to get rid of because of the guilt and the shame and the self-loathing and the disappointment. But with obedience, the Scriptures say, with obedience, there is joy. There's not even, there's not a bitter taste. There's nothing, there's no uh, terrible residue. The joy of walking with the Father. And, and one of the reasons we see, one of the causes of joy in the Scripture is is consistent obedience. The third catalyst for joy that we see in the Scriptures is the, the confident and reasonable expectation. Now, notice I, I say confident and reasonable expectation of something better to come. Not just wishful thinking, not just sort of believing that things are going to be awesome tomorrow, but a Holy Spirit-inspired certainty of God's justice and mercy and and really the, the hope and confidence in his glorious return. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. Yeah, things are going to get really, really bad for you. So I want you to know that. Things are going to get bad. Everybody's going to hate you. And people are not going to respond to your message well, generally speaking. But I want you to know that this God who is with you will sustain you. He will, he will keep you. And you will see me again. Now, the... the, the, the reception that Jesus would have with those disciples just in a few days would be yet a taste of what they would have with Jesus for eternity. So there's both sort of an already not yet uh, tension here. 
Jesus saying, you will see me again. Jesus' resurrection offers undeniable evidence that God is not finished with the world yet. And he's not finished with his disciples. His resurrection points to his imminent and final return when he will make all things right. Here's our second point. The suffering we endure as we wait, wait for Christ's return cannot compare to all the wonderful things Jesus will do to consummate the joy of his people. A few weeks ago, I told you about the deaths of three teenagers who were part of the church that I pastored in Southern California, killed by a maniac who was so enraged by their simple, silly prank that he ran them off the road, drove, pushed them into a tree. Three of them died. Well, just last week, the parents were interviewed in the local newspaper, the Press Enterprise, and their interview made the front page. And what was so powerful was how the mothers and fathers of these children, senselessly killed, were actually trusting in, inexplicably to the world, trusting in the Lord's justice. They said, we don't know why God allowed this to happen in His sovereignty. We, we don't understand it, but we know that somehow, in a way that's beyond us, God's plan is good. We don't know what will become of the man who did this, what sort of sentence he might receive, but we do know that somehow God will turn this chaos into beauty. He will one day make everything right. Someday, someday justice will be fully served. And we can be glad in that, they said. Now this is a Holy Spirit-enabled joy that is rooted in the confident and reasonable expectation that something better is on the way. And I can say the same for us this morning. Whatever you're going through, and maybe it's something that no one knows about but you, whatever you're going through, I can't give you a reason for it. I can tell you here's why this is happening. Those things are they just exist in the mind of God. But what I can say is that you can know with absolute certainty that one day Jesus Christ will make everything right. And it may be soon for you. It may be soon. It may not be soon. But He will surely make right everything that's wrong. He will surely bring justice to your situation. He will surely come and redeem he will, he will deliver you from the ashes. He will rescue you. The suffering you're enduring right now cannot even compare to what God has in store for you. Now look at verses 23 through 24. In that day you will ask nothing of me, Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Now, typically, the phrase, in that day, which is what verse 23 begins with, it's a reference to the last days. And the period of the last days in biblical thinking actually started with, commenced with, the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, now this is, of course, he's writing in the first century, God has spoken to us by His Son, showing that the last days arrived with, you know, the, the, the coming and the ministry of Jesus. 
And the last days, the period of the last days will continue until Jesus returns. In other words, we're, we're living in the last days. These are the last days. Now, we don't know how long this present season of history will last. So far, it's, it's been around for 2,000 years or so. But we do know that this present season of history is the last one. It's the last era, the last epic, whatever you want to say, until Jesus returns. And, of course, we live with tension in this season of history. As we talked about at Christmas during the Advent, uh, there is an already not yet tension that we must accept. Jesus has already come. That's why what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ. And yet, His victorious return, when He'll make all things right, is something we still long for. The kingdom of God is here. The, 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 gospel announcers, the gospel writers make this announcement over and over and over again. They say the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. But it has not been fully consummated and won't be until Jesus returns. So you see the tension. And we see glimpses of God's kingdom on earth all the time. We see people who are being saved, people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We see lives that are being transformed. Just heard about one two weeks ago. God miraculously working to bring someone to saving faith. We see relationships being restored. We see good things happening. We see the evidence of God's kingdom. And yet we still, we look around and we also see every kind of manifestation of evil. From murder and hatred, again, to violence and poverty and starvation and all of these things, we see those things. So we feel that tension. We also feel the tension in our own lives. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner says it this way, we are being changed by God's grace and by His Spirit, and yet we still sin daily. And thus perfection is not a possibility in this life. God keeps us humble by reminding us how far we have to go. There's never an excuse for sin. However, the already but not yet a dimension of sanctification makes us realistic so that we don't think we're more spiritual than we really are. In other words, we are, we've, we've been sanctified, but we're being sanctified. We are now perfect in God's eyes positionally, and yet we know, it's very clear to us, we're not perfect in the way we live our daily lives. We know that we've been justified, we've been declared not guilty, before God. Our legal standing with God is, is as those who have never committed a single sin, and yet we know that we have sinned. And we live in this tension, the in-between tension. And in, in, in the middle of that, we persevere, though, with great hope, with a sense of certainty that because of the resurrection, we can know God is not finished with the world. In fact, God is coming back to restore it. So what does it mean when Jesus says in verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me? Well, the disciples have been around Jesus 24-7, haven't they? They've been traveling with Jesus and eating with Jesus and walking with Jesus and going to different villages with Jesus. And they were constantly, we know from the gospel writers, they were constantly asking him things, asking him questions and asking him for things. What Jesus is saying is, you've been asking me questions, but when I leave you, that is to say when I'm resurrected and I ascend to the Father, I won't be around to ask questions, for you to ask questions. 
But that's okay because you can go directly to the Father in my name and he will hear you and he will answer you. Now, by the way, praying in Jesus' name doesn't mean we just sort of attach at the end of any prayer that phrase in Jesus' name and then we, we necessarily get what we want. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And Jesus doesn't mean that every time you pray, you have to say at the end in Jesus' name or you're doing it wrong. I'll sometimes actually, if I'm in a group, I'll pray and I'll not say in Jesus' name just to force people to think a little bit. What does that actually mean? Um, praying in Jesus' name means praying in line with God's kingdom purposes and asking God to act upon our prayers because we come in the name of Jesus and not in our own name, our own goodness, our own merit, our own worthiness. Well, the disciples had, been pray- had not been praying that way because they didn't understand the nature of the cross. They didn't understand how all this fit together until after the resurrection. So what is this promise that Jesus makes in verse 24? Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Well, what do we think, what do we imagine the disciples would have been asking Jesus on a regular basis and with the greatest urgency? Remember, we talked about this last week. Jesus is sending out the disciples into this hostile world. And what he says to them is incredibly is, I'm actually handing over this multiplying ministry to you. I'm handing over this ministry to you. So I'm, I'm calling you to go and make disciples. Now, we've, we've broken this discourse down into several weeks because it spans chapters 14 through 17. But remember, it was just one, it was one discourse. It was one exchange. And Jesus has just informed his disciples that they will suffer, the world will hate them, and yet he's sending them out as his representatives. Again, he's turning over this multiplying ministry to them. So what do you think they were asking? Well, I'm sure they were asking things like, how can we make sure we get this thing right? How can we make sure we don't mess it up? What's the best way to go about this? And why us of all people, Jesus? What happens if we fail in our mission? And Jesus reminds them that the Father is with them. He is doing His work And as they cry out to God for His kingdom to be advanced, for His message to take root, the Father will answer them. And surely, the very existence of the church today and the fact that there are disciples of Jesus all over the world shows that the Father, in fact, did answer their prayers. Jesus also wants them to know that even though they will fail, and we know they will fail somewhat uh, Gloriously, the disciples, many of them will fail in incredible ways. In fact, even at Jesus' death, they they scatter. But Jesus wants them to know that even though they will fail, God will still hear them if they approach God in Jesus' name. Again, not throwing a certain phrase on there, but based on Jesus' merit, goodness, and achievements, not on their own. I absolutely love Martin Luther's explanation of this phrase in Jesus' name. It's a long quote, but it's it's so worth it. He writes, In my name is the most important part of our text. It is the foundation on which prayer must rest. These words give to prayer the good quality and the dignity that make it acceptable to God. They also free us from all severe trials and from useless worries regarding our own worthiness. 
Worries that hinder our praying and frighten us more than anything else. From these words we gather that we should not be concerned or worry about our own worthiness, but should forget about both worthiness and unworthiness and base our prayer on Christ and pray in His name. It is as though He were saying, my dear friend, it does not matter in what condition you are. Pray in my name. You are not worthy and holy enough. Let me be holy and worthy enough for you. Here's our final point this morning. Prayer that God accepts, the kind He delights in answering, is rooted in humble dependence on Jesus and His work and focused on Christ's kingdom. This is what Jesus says when He says, pray in my name. He's saying when you pray... Pray according to God's kingdom purpose. Now, of course, they didn't fully understand at that moment. Pray according to God's kingdom purposes. And when you pray, come to the Father in my name. In other words, don't come to God believing that you deserve to be there, believing that it's on your own goodness or your merit of something or something you've done. But pray in my name. Come to the Father through me because of what I've done. Have you ever started to pray? And I'll be very candid with you and say this has happened to me plenty of times. And just felt like I, I just I don't feel like I can go to God right now. Either I just sinned in some way or because of a fight I had or anger or whatever it was. You ever felt like I just, I'm just not worthy to approach God at this moment. Well, the beautiful part of Jesus' instructions here is that we can always go to God and be heard in Jesus' name. Again, not because we say those words at the end, but if we come recognizing that it's only because Jesus was perfect that I can approach God. My worthiness or unworthiness has nothing to do with it, actually. And it's in that recognition that we will be heard and answered because of Jesus, out of God's infinite wisdom and power, that we can actually have joy. Because of His love for us, the Father delights in giving us good things. We can trust that, and therein is joy. Because the Father has forgiven us in Christ, we know that, that our position with Him is secure. And we know that what He gives to us will be for our good and His glory. And in that recognition, there is joy. God is advancing His kingdom through our prayers. He is continually pouring out His love in our hearts through His Holy Spirit as we pray. And we can always come to Him if we come in Jesus' name. It won't be because we are worthy that we gain an audience before God. It will be because we go to Him through the finished work and in the name of His Son. There's no doubt our sins are many. They are ever before us. But His mercy is so much more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that we can approach you this morning and actually have incredible, reasonable confidence that we will be heard, not because we've had a good week, not because we've been a good Christian, because the reality is we know we've failed, but we can go to you and be heard because we come to you in Jesus' name. And when we go to you, Father, we know that because you raised Jesus from the dead, we have undeniable 
historical, overwhelming evidence that this same Jesus will come again and that everything we're going through at this moment, it cannot compare to the joy that will be ours when Christ returns and in a thousand ways makes right everything that's wrong with this broken world. Give us the grace to believe it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.